0: This podcast is supported by our friends at Patagonia, the company known for its mission-driven approach and environmental activism. Right now, the clothing industry is contributing up to 10% of the pollution driving the climate crisis. But it doesn't have to be this way. Patagonia encourages us to buy less. And if you do decide to buy something new, to make sure you ask more from the things you buy. Demand recycled. Demand fair trade. Demand organic. You have the power to change the way clothes are made. Learn more at patagonia.com.au. Greetings, Nathan. With you, sending love from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people here in Melbourne's North, where things are pretty tough, I gotta say, but we carry on. And as always, Dumbo Feather is here with conversations and stories to tell. And we've got a beauty for you this episode. It's a chat led by our good friend, Helena Norberg-Hodge, who's a champion of all things localising. If you want to get local, and let's face it, that's where all the good stuff happens, get on to Helena and her organisation, Local Futures. In this chat, she's joined by none other than Johan Hari the writer-journalist behind the smash-hit book Lost Connections, which, if you haven't read already, I recommend you get onto that one immediately. So through this book, Johan uncovers the real causes behind depression and the unexpected solutions, some of which land right in Helena's work, such as connecting with community and local economies. They explore some of those topics in the chat now. So
1: the first thing... Are you happy to tell us a little bit about your background, your childhood, and what sort of shaped you and your interests?
2: You know, it's very related to the subject of my book about connections, actually, in in all sorts of ways. I wrote the book because there were these two mysteries that were hanging over me. The first is that I'm 40 years old, and all throughout my life, depression and anxiety have increased in all the places that I've lived, in Britain, in the United States, in Switzerland, across the world. And I wanted to understand why. <laughs> Why is this happening? Why is it that with each year that passes, more and more of us are finding it harder to get through the day? And I wanted to understand this because of a more personal reason, which is that when I was a teenager, I remember going to my doctor and explaining that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me, and I didn't understand it, I couldn't control it, felt quite ashamed of it. And and my doctor told me a story that I now realized was well-intentioned and not 100% wrong, but was really, really oversimplified. Um, my doctor said, well, we know why people get like this. Some people just have something wrong with their brains. You're clearly one of them. All we need to do is give you these drugs and you're going to be fine. So I was given a chemical antidepressant named Paxil. And it gave me some relief, but I became depressed again. So they gave me higher doses and higher doses. For 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose you're allowed to take, at the end of which I still felt awful. So. I ended up going on this big journey all over the world. I wanted to understand both for myself and for the society what was happening. So I went all over the world. I traveled over 40,000 miles. I met a crazy mixture of people from an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, to a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that would make people feel better, to a lab in Baltimore where they're giving people psychedelics to see if that helped with their depression. And I learned a huge amount. But the core of what I learned is that there's scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are indeed in our biology, but most of them are not in our biology. Most of them are factors in the way we live. And once you understand them, it opens up a very different set of solutions and a whole different way of thinking about what human beings are. In terms of where I grew up and how that affected me, I grew up in a typical suburb of London called Edgware. My parents had come from quite poor backgrounds, and they both thought of themselves as immigrants. My dad was from a tiny mountain in Switzerland, and my mother had grown up in tenement housing in Scotland. You know, they had really worked unbelievably hard to get into a kind of middle-class life, and I'm very grateful to them for the work that they did to get me there. But it was very interesting to me to see the place I grew up was a place full of decent people who worked hard. But, you know, both my parents had grown up in places where there had been communities. My father had known everyone who lived in his village. And my mother had known most of the people who lived in her area. I was a baby when they moved to London. I don't remember life before that. But I remember my mother, when she came to live in this suburb in London, she realized that you're not meant to go and talk to your neighbors. It's considered almost bad manners. Well, you can a little bit, but there's a very, very strict limit on how much you can engage with them. And I remember there were times when she would just look at our street and she would say, where is everyone? Yeah. Where are all the people? She could never really adjust to it. Both my parents had grown up in such a different environment. And of course, to me, that just seemed when I was young weird. It was alien to me, their way of thinking, because it didn't fit with the reality around me. And I grew up very much in a world of consumerist values. I want to stress there were lots of kind, decent people where I grew up, but their dominant values were about television and consumerism. So I remember when I was about nine or ten years old, in this suburb where I lived, a shopping centre opened up called the Boardwalk Center. And I remember I just absorbed this from the culture of advertising, thinking this was the most incredible thing, that there was this suddenly the shopping center, and I would wander through the shops, staring at things in this sense of awe, which of course wore off very quickly. But and I remember thinking when I was a child, if you had asked me, what, what is happiness? I would have said, it's being able to walk into the boardwalk center and to buy anything you want. Yeah. So I was very much raised in a place where there's a lot of isolation, where in fact, isolation was the norm where your sense of home is meant to be your house and maybe your family, and a place where the dominant values were just straightforward consumerist values. And that was where you were trained to seek happiness. Where do you seek happiness? You work hard, a job you don't like, to buy things you don't need. That was the story about happiness that I had. And it was only much later that I began to see the problems with those ways of living, I guess.
1: And so what do you think triggered that awareness? Was it the depression and the drugs or was there something else? I was
2: experiencing depression and anxiety, like a huge number of people in the place where I grew up and in our culture. And I was taught, not just by my doctor, but by the wider culture, to regard my depression and anxiety as malfunctions inside myself. And what I learned from the leading experts in the world is there is a biological component to depression and anxiety, to be sure, but it's one part of a much bigger picture. And in the main, depression and anxiety are not malfunctions. They're signals that are telling us something. Everyone knows they have natural physical needs. Obviously, you need food and water and shelter and clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be in a lot of trouble. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we built is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today, but we've been getting less and less good and meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. So I think for me, it's a curious thing. I was experiencing these signals that my needs weren't being met, but I had an incorrect method for interpreting those signals. I'd been given the wrong story yeah. about what I felt. A psychologist I read once said that one of the most powerful things you can ever do is give someone a narrative for their pain and distress. And if you're given a narrative that is wrong, In all sorts of ways, it trains you to seek happiness in all the wrong places and meaning in all the wrong places. And so there was a moment when this became completely clear to me in my research. This was really close to an actual epiphany. I went to interview a wonderful South African psychiatrist named Dr. Derek Summerfield. And he told me a story that really changed how I thought about my own depression and the depression that's been rising all around me. So he explained to me that in 2001, He happened to be in Cambodia when they first introduced chemical antidepressants for people in that country. And the local doctors, the Cambodians, had never heard of these drugs. So they were like, what are they? And he explained. And they said to him, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? They told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine left over from the war with the United States. And he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial limb and he went back after a while, some period of rehabilitation, to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's extremely painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial leg. And I'm guessing it was very traumatic to go and work in the field, where he got blown up. The man started to cry all day. He refused to get out of bed. Obviously what we would call depressed. This is when the Cambodians said to Dr. Summerfield, well, that's when we gave him an antidepressant. And Dr. Summerfield said, what was it? And they explained that they went and sat with him they listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. If you listened to him, it was perfectly understandable why he was depressed. One of them figured, if we bought this guy a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was screwing him up so much. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to Dr. Summerfield, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression and anxiety the way we have in Western culture, that sounds like a joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. She gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the leading medical body in the whole world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy, you're not a machine with broken parts, you're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is love and help and support to Mm. get those deeper needs met. So I think we need to really transform our understanding of what depression and anxiety are and then radically expand our idea of what an antidepressant is. Anything that reduces depression should be regarded as an antidepressant. For some people, for some time, that will include drugs and that has value. But precisely because this problem goes so much deeper than our biology, Mm. we need to find solutions that go much deeper than our biology too.
1: Absolutely. I can't tell you how much I agree And one of the reasons I'm so motivated to get out this message about a structural economic path that helps us to connect in an interdependent way in more human-scale structures is also just this aching sadness at how many people around the world are made to feel that they are idiots, that they are wrong. So what I see everywhere in the world is self-blame, because this message that's going out about how to be happy, and not just about how to be happy, but who you should be, to have the respect that everybody deserves, to be seen, to be valued, to be connected. The message now, literally, globally, is you've got to look like a successful urban Western consumer, you've got to be successful, and that means really good job, meaning lots of money, And all the time, the messaging is also, you've got to live in the urban centers of the world. which Of course, is where the jobs are concentrated. So it's so tragic to see literally in every country I know of. And we've worked in about a dozen countries. We've had connection with, you know, 50 language groups. And literally around the world, there is this epidemic of depression and anxiety on the increase in every single country. I know of no exception. And yet, the narrative remains very local, very within the national boundaries, but still constructed by global media. And that message means that people blame themselves, the parents blame themselves, and they blame their own politicians, they blame their own government. They're not looking at essentially a corporate consumer culture agenda. That means that the way we calculate growth, growth increases with these illnesses. It is such a tragedy. And above all, it's so tragic to see when people don't realize that this is an epidemic everywhere.
2: I think you're totally right. And there's an aspect of the bigger picture that I learned about. So one of the causes of depression and anxiety that I learned about, I found most challenging for the book, was what I learned from an amazing man. For thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, you're going to feel like shit. That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that's basically what he said. But actually, nobody had scientifically investigated this in an empirical way until this amazing man named Professor Tim Kasser, who's at Knox College in Illinois, was the first person to really scientifically investigate this. And he made a huge number of breakthroughs, but I'll just tell you the headlines. The first was he discovered that the philosophers were right that the more you think life is about money and status and showing off, the more depressed and anxious you'll become. He also showed As a society, as a culture, we have become much more driven by this way of thinking. And the way I started to think about it was, everyone knows junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, but junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. Everyone needs nutrition. And what junk food does is it appeals to the part of us that needs nutrition, but actually makes us sick. In the same way, everyone needs a system of values to guide them through life. And what these junk values do is they tell you, oh, this is how you guide yourself through life. But they actually train you to seek happiness in all the wrong places. There's a little experiment that I think illustrates this so well. It was done in 1978, not by Professor Kasser, but by a different team. And it's a very simple experiment. They got a bunch of five year olds and they split them into two groups. And the first group was shown no advertisements. And the second group was shown two advertisements for a popular toy at the time. And then all the kids are given a choice. They say, OK, kids. Now you can play with one of two children. You can either play with this nice boy who doesn't have any toys, or you can play with a nasty boy who's got the toy that was in the advertisement. The kids who hadn't seen the advertisement overwhelmingly chose to play with the nice boy. They chose the human connection. The kids who'd seen just two advertisements overwhelmingly chose the nasty boy who had the toy. So what this shows us is just exposure to two advertisements trained these kids to prefer an object, a lump of plastic, Over fun, connection, enjoyment. And I think in a small way, that illustrates what's happened to the whole culture, right? Everyone sees more than two advertisements a day. More 18 month old children in the United States know what the McDonald's M means than know their own last name. Yeah. So we're immersed from the moment we're born in this machinery. The way Professor Kasser put it to me is we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life. It's a very profound and challenging insight. So I think about myself as a little boy being trained to think happiness is walking around the shopping mall and being able to buy everything, even though at some level I knew, well, the times when I could go into a shopping mall and buy something, the happiness lasted for a very short period of time. One of the most interesting bits of research that Professor Kasser did, he teamed up with a guy called Nathan Dungan and did a really simple little experiment. So Nathan is a financial advisor in Minneapolis. And one day he got called in by a school. So his job was to advise people on budgeting, doing their family budget, that sort of thing. And he got called by a school and they said, look, we've got a problem. The kids at our school are becoming obsessed with getting the latest sneakers, the latest iPhone, whatever it be. And they're really getting angry and panicked and anxious when they can't get these things. Mm -hmm. And it's causing a lot of problems. Could you come in and advise them on budgeting so that they'll understand that their parents can't afford it? So he came in and he talked to the kids and he quickly realized, these kids don't give a shit about budgeting. There's something else going on here that's deeper than they don't understand that their parents don't have the money. So he teamed up with Professor Kasser and they did the this research, it's very simple, and I recommend people do this themselves. They just got a group together of teenagers and their parents to meet once every few weeks for a few months. And the first meeting they had, they didn't give them much guidance, they just said, I just want you to make a list of all the things you've got to have. They didn't tell them what that meant. And of course, at first, people said, you know, you need a home, you need food and things. But quite quickly, people named things you really don't have to have, like the latest Nike sneakers, or the parents would name a handbag, a fancy car, whatever it would be. And they'd said to the group, well, okay, let's imagine that tomorrow you've got this thing. You've got the Nike sneakers, you've got the handbag, you've got the car. How would your life be different? And very quickly, it's interesting, almost nobody mentioned the ostensible purpose of the object. They didn't go, I want to play basketball, and I'll be able to jump higher. No one said that. They said things like, people would envy me or I would be accepted by the group. It doesn't take long to get people to say that yeah. out loud. Where did you get the idea that you would have yeah. worth because you bought a piece yeah. of plastic? Even just getting them to say these values out loud got them to take it apart. But the next thing they did in the group is they got people to talk about what are moments in your life when you did feel meaning and purpose, mm-hmm. when you did feel either meaningful or happy. Different people named different things. Some people it was playing the piano or running on the beach And then the group started talking about how could you build more of your life around pursuing these moments of meaning and purpose Mm. and less around buying the things that you can see don't make you feel good. Mm. What was interesting is just having these conversations and checking in with each other, they measured their values, led to a marked shift in the values of these people. Mm. It was like Alcoholics Anonymous for consumerism. And we know that those shifts in values lead to a reduction in depression and anxiety. Mm. And to me, what's so important about that is because what you're saying, and what Professor Cass is saying, cuts with the grain of human nature, Absolutely. right? And this system cuts against the grain. Ab- These insights are just beneath the surface.
1: Absolutely. And this is also what we find, is that particularly women respond by saying, oh, you put words to what I always felt, but I couldn't articulate so clearly. And there's definitely a bit of a gender difference there. That women tend to be a little bit more sensitive to their own emotions than the emotions of others. One of the things that I think we have to think about is, first of all, why the commercial pressures have increased so dramatically in the last 30 years, and also why experiments like that are not reaching the wider world. You know, there were people like Eric Frome who was writing in a similar way, but those voices generally just don't get out. In the last 30 years, this is what we've witnessed is progressively a bearing of all those messages that could help people move in the opposite direction, away from consumerism. From my point of view, it's a tragic structural conspiracy where narrow, overspecialized science linked to larger and larger scale economic units, essentially to giant corporations, and where more and more of the research is often unconsciously serving this really rather evil agenda
2: I think it's really well put. And I think actually Noam Chomsky, who we both um, admire, in a way you have to use some of his analysis to think about this. But I think you're right. If you look at the origins of psychology as an academic discipline, Mm. for example. So psychology is created as an academic discipline in the United States. There have been some people who would have been regarded as psychologists in Germany. But psychology is created as a modern academic discipline in the United States explicitly by people who want to figure out how do you make workers more productive in factories. That's the origin of it, right? It's Fordist production and very much academic psychology has been shaped unconsciously by these capitalist values. You can see how often these things are presented as neutral science, but are in fact carriers of capitalist values. A good example. In the 1970s, the American Psychiatric Association decided that for the first time they were going to standardize how they defined depression, because up to then doctors were just calling anything they wanted depression. So they wrote a fairly basic definition They drop a checklist of 10 symptoms, things like crying a lot, feeling life isn't worth living. And they said to psychiatrists, if any of your patients have more than six of these 10 symptoms for more than two weeks, you should diagnose them as mentally ill and do what you can to help them. So this checklist is sent out to psychiatrists all over the United States. But within a few months, some of them start to come back and go, we've got a bit of a problem here. If we use this checklist the way you've told us to, we're going to have to define every grieving person as mentally ill because Mm -hmm. these are the symptoms of grief. So they invented what became known as the grief loophole. They said, okay, if any of your patients have more than six of these 10 symptoms for more than two weeks, define them as mentally ill, unless someone they love has died in the last year, in which case they're not crazy, they're not mentally ill, you shouldn't give them any treatment. So psychiatrists started applying that, but then that begged the obvious question Why is someone you love dying the only reason where you're allowed to feel really bad and not Mm. be classed as mentally ill? Why not if you've lost your job? Why not if you're stuck in a job you hate for the next 40 years? Why not if you've been made homeless? We can all think of immediate examples. And you can see how what appears to be a neutral science is in fact based on these profoundly capitalist values. If you allow all of that context into psychiatry, Mm. then you start diagnosing the society, not the individual. Actually, why have we got a society where so many people are unhappy? And also bear in mind, particularly in the United States, if you're classed as mentally ill, you're given permission to not work for a short period. You've got to very tightly limit in a capitalist system the number of people who are allowed to not work. Yeah. So you can see you're not happy with your job, but that's not a legitimate reason, yeah. feel terrible, get back to work. The American Psychiatric Association is saying even worse, which is because people challenged it, they gradually reduced the amount of time you were allowed to be grieving. Yeah. Yeah. When they started it was a year, but employers were pissed off about that. We can't have people being off work for a year. So they reduced it in the end down to two weeks. So now if you're still depressed two weeks after your baby died, well, then you're mentally ill. You need to be drugged. You need to be pathologized. You need to be categorized as mentally yeah. ill. So I think you're right. We're in a weird situation. It isn't like explaining Chomsky and linguistics or quantum physics to people. It's not complicated. People get it immediately when you talk mm. to them about it. But we're in this weird situation where what we are saying to people, you and I and the many people who share this perspective, is both obvious and deeply challenging and revolutionary, which is a sign of how awry the culture has gone. There's a great quote, Krishnamurti, the Indian philosopher, said, it's no sign of good health to be well adjusted to a sick society. Yeah,
1: very, very good. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, also, when you say in this capitalist system... I want to explain why I don't use that language, because very often on the left in the Anglo world, Scandinavia is held up as this sort of nice balance, you know, and from my point of view, in that socialist system and in the communist, as well as the capitalist, there are other issues at play which have to do with industrialism, fueled by so-called cheap fossil fuels is to do with centralised, top-down structures that become monocultural, that become an imposition, and that strangle real human interdependence, which I see as the cornerstone for well-being.
2: I think you're totally right. Some people have a narrow understanding of the problem. So I would argue there are many social configurations that don't meet people's deeper needs. One is contemporary capitalism. Definitely another one was the Soviet Union, which was even worse. So you can get into a kind of simplistic binary yeah. where people think if you're critiquing the contemporary capitalist system, you're proposing these even worse and yeah. more horrific models, which yeah. are not just worse for individual psychological needs, but actually worse for the environment. And I mean, just a horror show beyond words. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's a really important yeah. clarification. One of the heroes of my book is an amazing man named Dr. Sam Everington. He's a general practitioner in East London and he's a poor part of East London where I lived for many years. And Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him who had just terrible depression and anxiety. And like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they have some role to play. But he could see two things. Firstly, that his patients were depressed and anxious for perfectly understandable reasons. In the vast majority of cases, they were really lonely or financially insecure. And secondly, he could see that chemical antidepressants gave him a bit of relief, but didn't actually solve the problem for most of them. So one day he had this idea to try something different. A patient came to his practice called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know later. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with just crippling depression for seven years. she barely left the house. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs. I'd also like you to try something else, like to come and meet a couple of times a week here at the doctor's practice, to meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people, not to talk about how bad you feel. I mean, you can do that if you want, but I want you to find something you can do together that would be meaningful. The first time the group met, Lisa literally vomited with anxiety. It was just so much for her. But there was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was just scrubland. And they started talking. And these are inner city, East London people who didn't know anything about gardening. But they were like, we could turn this into a garden. That'd be a nice thing to do. So they started to get books out of the library. They started to watch clips on YouTube about, about gardening. And they started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. They started to reconnect with the natural world interacting with the natural world is a profoundly healing antidepressant and they started to form a tribe they started to form a group they started to care about each other if one of them didn't show up the others would go looking for them figure out what was going on help them solve their problem the way lisa put it to me as the garden began to bloom we began to bloom Mm. there was a study in norway of a very similar program that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for an obvious reason, right, and this is something I saw all over the world in my research from Sydney to San Francisco to Sao Paulo, the most effective strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with the reasons why we're depressed and anxious in the first place. They're the ones that respect the signal, that listen to the signal and solve the underlying problem. What we've been doing up to now is pathologizing the signal and insulting the signal. They're saying it's a sign of weakness or it's a sign of craziness or it's purely a biological malfunction, when in fact that's a way too simplistic a way of understanding what this problem is and it leads us therefore to find the wrong. If you don't have an accurate map, you can't find your way through the territory. And because we've given people an inaccurate map of their problem or a very limited map of their problem, we've neglected to explain the real problem.
1: For me, what you say that is absolutely perfect and also why I hope that we can talk more in the future about how localization is the way to actually create that sense of interdependence, both between people and between them and the living world. And of course, this is something that can sound very unrealistic, it can sound too small, but we're seeing in cities, just as you did in this case with Lisa, that There they were in a city, just a little bit of land, and being helped to connect deeply with each other and to connect to the land was this remarkable healing. It would be far cheaper, it would be far easier to shift the current system where taxes, subsidies, and regulations are pushing us in exactly the opposite direction. You know,
2: there's an example of a place, I think you can tell from the way I talk about it, that I learned a lot from scientists and doctors in my journey to write lost collections. But actually, the people who taught me the most about this subject were not scientists and doctors. It was a group of people who I think really fit with your thesis very powerfully. If it's okay, I'll just tell you their story. In the summer of 2011, on a big anonymous housing project in Berlin, a Turkish-German woman named Nuria Cengiz climbed out of her wheelchair, and she put a sign in her window. Nuria lived on the ground floor, and the sign said, I got a notice saying I'm going to be evicted from my apartment next Thursday, so on Wednesday night, I'm going to kill myself. Now, this housing project is a place called Kotti. It's a very poor part of Berlin, and for a long time, basically only three groups of people had lived there. There were recent Muslim immigrants like this woman, Nuria, there were gay men, and there were punk squatters. And as you can imagine, these three groups did not get along, but no one knew anyone. It was a completely isolated place, a huge amount of depression and anxiety. And people started to walk past Nuria's window. No one knew her. And they saw this sign. And people knocked on her door and they said, oh, do you need any help? Mm. And Nuria said, no, fuck you. I don't want any help. I'm going to kill myself. Like in the whole of Berlin, in this housing project, there had been rising rents for a really long time. A lot of people were being evicted. So a lot of people really identified with this woman's struggle. And people started talking outside her apartment one day, and they had an idea. There's a big thoroughfare that goes through this housing project through Cotti. and they had this idea, if we just block the road for a day, and we have a protest, there'll be a bit of a fuss, they'll probably let Nuria stay, there might even be some pressure to keep our rents down across the city. So Saturday came, they blocked the road, they wheeled Nuria out, she said, well, I'm going to kill myself, I might as well let these people push me into the middle of the street. <laughs> And they had a protest and the media did come and it was a bit of a news event in Berlin that day. And then it got to the end of the day and the police said to them, OK, you've had your fun. Take this barricade down. And the people who lived at Cotti said, well, you haven't told Nuria she gets to stay. Actually, we'll take this barricade down when Nuria gets a guarantee she can stay and we get a rent freeze for our entire housing project. But of course, they knew the minute they walked away from this barricade, the police would just tear it down and that would be the end of it. So one of my favorite people at Cotti, a woman called Tanya Gartner, who's one of the punk squatters, had an idea. She went up to her apartment and she had a klaxon, you know, those things that make loud noises at soccer matches. Yeah. Came down, she said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to drop a timetable to man this barricade 24 hours a day until we've got, guarantee Nuri gets to stay, we've got a rope freeze for all of us, and we're not going to stop until we've got what we demand. So people start signing up to man this barricade, people who would never have met. Tanya got paired up with Nuria. And the first few nights they sit there, they were like, this is awful. We've got nothing to (laughs) talk about. We couldn't have less in common. This is terrible. As the nights went on, Tanya and Nuria started talking. They realized they had something incredibly powerful in common. Mm. Nuria had come to Berlin when she was 16 years old from a village in Turkey with two small babies. And she was meant to earn enough money to send back home for her husband in Turkey to come and join her. And she was there for a year and a half. She worked every job she could. She was looking after her babies as best she could. And then sitting there in the cold in Koti with Tanya, she told her something she'd never told anyone in Germany before. She'd always told people she got word that her husband in Turkey had died of a heart attack. In fact, she told Tanya he died of tuberculosis, which was seen as like a shameful disease of poverty at that time. That's when Tanya told Nuria something she never talked about. Tanya had come to Cotty when she was 15, even younger than Nuria. She'd been thrown out by her middle-class family because they thought it was insane that she loved punk. She lived in a squat in Cotty and she got pregnant not long after she arrived. So they realised, Tanya and Nuria, that they were incredibly similar. They had Mm. both been children who'd had children of their own in this place they didn't understand. Mm. These pairings were happening all over Cotty. There was a grumpy old white guy called Dieter who was paired with a young... Turkish-German lad called Mehmet, who kept being told he'd nearly be thrown out of school because they said he had ADHD. And Dieter started helping Mehmet with his schoolwork. Directly opposite this housing project, there's a gay club that had opened about a year and a half before the protest called Zudblock, which is a hardcore gay club. It's run by a man I love called Rick Hardstein. And as you can imagine, it's an area with a lot of religious Muslims. When the gay club was open, some people were really angry. Some people had smashed their windows. When the protest began, this club gave all their furniture to the protest, the barricade. And after going on for about six months, they said, you know, you guys should have your meetings in our club. We'll give you free drinks. We'll give you free food. And even the lefties at Cotty said, you know, we're not going to get these very religious Muslims to come and have meetings in a very extreme gay club. Yeah. But it did start to happen. One of the Turkish German women there said to me, we all realised we had to take these small steps to understand each other. Mm. And after the protests had been going on for a full year, the barricade was manned every minute, a guy turned up at Koti named Tung Kai, who had clearly been living homeless. Tung Kai was in his early 50s. And when you meet Tung Kai, it's clear that he's got some kind of cognitive difficulties. But he had an amazing energy. He was really warm and funny. And people really loved him. And By this time, because a lot of the people at Cottey are construction workers, Their barricade was a permanent structure in the middle of the road with a roof. It's really lovely. And they said to Tunkai after a while, We don't want you to be homeless. You should come and live in this thing we've built. We love you. We Uh think you're great. So Tunkai came to live there and he became a much loved part of the Koti protest. And after he'd been there for about nine months, one day the police came to inspect. They would do this every now and then. And Tunkai doesn't like it when people argue. So he went to try to hug one of the police officers, but they thought he was attacking them. So they arrested him. That was when it was discovered. Tung Kai had been shut away in a psychiatric hospital for 20 years, often literally in a padded cell. One day he had escaped. He'd been on the streets for a few months and he'd found his way to Cotty. So the police took him back to this psychiatric hospital at the other side of Berlin, at which point the entire Cotty protest turned into a free Tung Kai movement. They descended on this psychiatric hospital. And I remember these psychiatrists being like, what is this? They've got this person they've had shut away for 20 years and suddenly they've got these women in hijabs, these very camp gay men and these punks. One of the protesters, Uli Hartman, said to the psychiatrist, yeah, but you don't love him. He doesn't belong with you. We love him. He belongs with us. I remember thinking when I heard that, how many of us, if we were carried away to a psychiatric hospital, Mm -hmm. would have hundreds of people saying, no, we look after this person. You don't do that. Anyway, lots of things happened at Cottey. They got Tunkai back. It took a while. They got a rent freeze for their entire housing project. They then launched a referendum initiative to freeze rents in Berlin. It got the largest number of written signatures in the history of the city of Berlin. Mm -hmm. Berlin now has a rent freeze. The last time I saw Nuria, I remember her saying to me, you know, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighborhood. That's great. But I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by these amazing people all along. And I would never have known. And I remember one of the Turkish-German women there who was a big part of the protest, Neriman Tanker, said to me, you know, when I grew up in Turkey, I grew up in a village and I called my whole village home. And then I came to live in the Western world. And I learned that here, what you're meant to call home is just your four walls. And if you're lucky, your family. And she said, when this protest began, she started to call all these people in this whole place her home. And she said to me, she realized that in some sense, in this culture, we are homeless. There's a wonderful Bosnian writer, Alexander Heyman, who said, home is where people notice when you're not there. And by that standard, we are homeless in this culture. Yeah. And to me, it was so clear to me in Koti, think about how unhappy they were, right? Nuria was about to kill herself. Tunkai was shut away in a padded cell. Mehmet was about to be thrown out of school for having ADHD. Loads of these people were depressed and anxious. In the main, they didn't need to be drugged. Yeah. They needed to be together. Yeah, they needed to exactly. be seen and valued. They need to have a sense of purpose and meaning. You're exactly right. That can only happen at the local level. At the local level, you can make bigger changes. And at Cottey, they were a key part of what led to the change in the whole of Berlin, getting rent freezes, which is inspiring a movement all over Europe. So the local can inspire the global. But if it hadn't been for that local reconnection with literally the people around them, I don't think that could have happened. And to me, that was a real illustration of the power of the local and yeah. the power of being seen by the people around you. I think you can tell that I love these people in Koti. I think they're amazing. But in many ways, they're not exceptional. They are random people. They were just expressing the deepest needs of human beings and finding ways to get those needs met.
1: Absolutely beautiful. And I also just want to stress that that village in Turkey and the villages around the world that I've experienced are not what they could be because... These rural communities all around the world have been marginalized for generations. Yeah. They've been yeah. disempowered. They've been made to feel stupid and backward. They've been left behind. All the resources have gone into the big city. where life becomes faster and faster and more anonymous. So mm. I want people to be aware that the potential for a genuinely prosperous and rich and rewarding way of life is much greater than what you do find in those traditional communities. And I would point to some of what I call the new local, where people are actually consciously choosing to rebuild the fabric. We have many examples, for instance, of the communities that were quite prejudiced against Muslims too, but then, you know, the Muslim shopkeeper in the local area, where people actually get to know Ahmed, know him as a human being, these concepts of, all Muslims are this way or that way, fall away. They don't always fall away overnight and they don't always lead to total love and connection. But it's really important that we reassess this idea that what we now have to do is to develop this sense of empathy with the entire human race, this sense of empathy and concern about everything that lives. Let's not move into that intellectual and very false view because by eroding and destroying genuine face-to-face relationship and really interdependence, the, the type of care that can only happen when you see each other, when you know each other, and you're talking about experiential knowledge. It's a type of yeah. total knowledge. is not just some left brain idea. This is the reality. That's when you create the foundations for people who are healthy and strong enough, have enough self-esteem to genuinely be open to and have respect for diversity. All life is interconnected. You know, this is also true in Buddhism. Those teachings were there, but they were reinforcing a way of life where that deep interdependent community was a fact Mm. and where the deep interdependence with nature was a fact. What we so badly need today is we need an updated Spiritual, if you like, teaching that does not take community and a type of embeddedness in the natural world for granted, and only talks about the the intellectual, the theories of how to keep that sense of wonder and awe and sense of wonder. Mm-hmm.
0: That was Helena Norvig hodge and Johan Hari on the Dumbo Feather podcast, an interview from early 2020, which we published in our localizing issue of Dumbo Feather magazine. And you can get yourself a copy of that with David Holmgren on the cover and many other brilliant changemakers and thought leaders inside the pages over at dumbofeather.com forward slash shop. Thanks to the guys at Cheshire Audio and Yaga for editing this episode. And thank you for tuning in and supporting our work. We are here to share with you twice a month on the podcast, then there's once every few months with our drop-dead gorgeous print magazine, and forever and a day over at our website and social media channels. That's it from me. Be good, stay well, and I'll see you next time on the Dumbo Feather Podcast.